This podcast is supported by Oasis, a Paychex company. Oasis helps small and medium-sized businesses to simplify back-office complexities like payroll, benefits, HR, and compliance. With Oasis, you can continue to run your business fearlessly. Learn more at oasisadvantage.com slash podcast. Infirmary Media. People engage in stuff for dueling decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Dueling decades. Who culture popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet and sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Dueling decades. Broadcasting from the Infirmary Media Studios, it's the adult only retro game show where the 80s and 90s do battle because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. Let me introduce this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for as we get back to tag team action here on our show. As always, I am Mark James, and the other retro warrior who makes up the team known the world over as the Mamelukes is this man. What's up? It's Nick Man Crush. We got November 1997. It feels weird being on this side of the fence, but it is what it is. Let's do this. And our opponents making their debut here on Dueling Decades, fighting with November of 1986. It's the 80s. I feel like we have to compete with Mark with the amount of testosterone he clearly has. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm Will of the 80s. And I'm Ray. We uh we do a little podcast about the 80s, so... I feel like we should be doing a pose down. But yeah, every week we defend the 1980s <laughs> objectively... We're trying to. We're setting out to prove that there is. A, you know, it doesn't require your opinion or any subjective uh, proof. Without a doubt, the 1980s was the best decade for pop culture. Yep. All right, let's All get right. going. I can't really argue too much since we always have the 80s, so I'm not going to be <laughs> we like, won. no <laughs> we way. Won. <laughs> And as always here on our show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So let me introduce to you tonight's judge. He's back, ladies and gentlemen, the brazen badass from Beantown, the host of the Selling Out Show, Judge Dave Schultz. Glad to be back. Gentlemen, please don't fear my gigantic gavel. I judge (laughs) gently. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and of course, hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score, after all five rounds. Weirdos, wasteoids, dweebs, and douchebags, get ready to play... Dueling Decades! All right, let's toss it right over to Judge Dave Schultz for the official toss-off. All right, guys, I always try to bring something interesting to flip uh, for the coin toss here, and I just pulled this out, and it is a VHS cover... For the Kevin Costner classic known as Waterworld. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes. Classic. It is. It absolutely is. And if you call heads, you will get the pretty face here, the very handsome, dapper Kevin Costner. And then on the back, which would be Tales, where a critic named Gary Franklin heralded this movie a 10 plus 
one of the best movies of the year. How true is that? I have no idea. I might want to argue because, um, well, actually, I'm not here to argue. I'm here to judge. So what do you guys have? <laughs> you guys call it. What do you want to call? Heads. Oh. All right. Give us pretty boy. Here comes the flip. And it is indeed heads. Nice. Yes. <laughs> All right, idiots. You guys have control of the board. What category would you like first for our first one point round? Oh, one point. What do you think? Let's just get the movies. Wait. Okay. Yes. Do movies. <laughs> See, Ray and I already we disagree in, <laughs> we on the strength <laughs> of our movies because I think they're really strong. Yeah, we thought that we might actually just come on your show and we're going to hash out what the best movie is and then the. Sh- Credits. Yeah, we we okay. can't even agree on that. So, okay. So, movies. You want to do your movie first, or you want me to do first? Well, well so, you know what's so funny is when I listen to your show, I always think, why don't the guests seem prepared? Like, <laughs> how do we not know what category they're going to do first, and you know who's going to speak first? Ray and I are going to have it nailed down. If you want me to go first, I'll go first. Okay. All sure. right? Yes. Uh, November seventh, nineteen eighty-six. A movie about the classic three-way: a girl. A boy and heroine, Sid and Nancy. Ah. Gary Oldman turns himself into Sid Vicious for this movie. Um, you've got the music of the Sex Pistols. You've got uh, Chloe Webb as Nancy, and her voice makes you want to kill yourself. Well, I mean, just a great performance <laughs> all the way around. And um, whether you believe he killed her or not, this story is amazing. On a budget of four million, it made just under three million, so you know that's good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, in its defense, it was kind of like a low-level movie, so it's three million is well, not bad considering. Well, and, and the best part is, is um, it gives you a lot of street cred back in the day if you saw this movie because this was not something you just went down to the old movie theater and checked out. You caught this thing on cable at one o'clock in the morning. You know what I mean? Yep, for sure. It gives you great lines, like when the drug dealer's there and says, like, give us what you got or piss off. I mean, come on. <laughs> they don't make movies like this anymore. Yeah, I remember watching it with my girlfriend on, on VHS just to seem cool when it came out. <laughs> I think a good portion of that budget probably went to hair gel. Uh, probably went to actually to heroin. If I'm honest, sir. <laughs> oh. Method acting, you know. Yeah, if you're gonna method act, you got to spend the money. I did have that as a pick for uh, a true crime episode uh, over the uh, summer, nice. and uh, I believe also just to give you an added, I think that might be Gary Oldman's like first starring role. I, I believe it is. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of a big deal for that movie. Not trying to give you any points, but you know it's, no, it's no, a good no, thing. no. But he's uh he's absolutely amazing in that movie. If you watch him up against video of Sid, I mean he nails it. I mean he just I think he's on heroin. I mean he literally just turned himself into that guy. Wow! And it's such a fun movie though because if you like tragedy, you know <laughs> then it's fun. Which it, <laughs> who it, doesn't like who tragedy? doesn't love it? You know, I, I I love horror movies. So for me, this is a real life horror movie. It's amazing. So I'm going with Sid and Nancy for my pick on movies. All right, what do you guys have for your second pick? Okay, for so if we go from Sid and Nancy, the smaller art house film, to the opposite end of the spectrum, taking you back to Thanksgiving weekend of November 1986. You've just awoken from your you know uh, tryptophan uh, induced coma, and you're looking for a movie to see. Go to the movie theaters, what's playing? Crocodile Dundee. But you don't see that one. <laughs> you don't see that. You're sick of that Aussie nonsense. He's been he's been at the top of the box office now for eight weeks in a row, but is about to be toppled by the newcomer, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. 
Uh, it's the follow-up to 1984's terrible Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, which is just an awful movie. After Leonard Nimoy was promised more creative control, because he also directed The Search for Spock, he ultimately decided to direct this movie. Uh, having more creative control, he worked with a screenwriter to come up with the story that was more uh, lighthearted, that was environmentally sensitive. It's it's about uh, having to return to the Earth to be able to save humpback whales at the time when the 80s, which, which when it was one of the many things in the 80s, we were terrified, uh, you know, what ultimately lead to the d- demise of, of mankind. Uh, the, the script, though, was ultimately written by the guy who, Nick Meyer, who also wrote Wrath of Khan and directed Wrath of Khan and also wrote, I found this out, Ray, he also wrote the childhood ending mo- TV movie The Day After, which <laughs> after that I was certain we were all going to be annihilated uh, for, for uh, by the Russians uh, in a nuclear holocaust. Um, it's regarded by the best Star Trek movie by anyone who's not seen The Wrath of Khan and my wife also. She thinks it's the best one. It went on to earn $133 million uh, worldwide on a budget of uh, $21 million. So unlike Sid and Nancy, you know, it's got some coin. I'm not good with math, so I think it all works out. (laughs) (laughs) It's the most profitable of the Star Treks. Um, It's also responsible for me still uttering such catchphrases as nuclear vessels and hello, computer. Oh, wow. You know, I think Ray's right. Okay, so we got to take a survey here, okay? Ray and I had a bet earlier on, all right? I wrote it down here. There's five of us here. How many of us have seen Star Trek The Voyage Home? How many of you guys have seen it? Sadly, I have. One, two. <laughs> yeah. I've seen it. Three. Three. All right. So I have not seen all it. All right. Split. Wow. So Ray said only two people would have seen it, including myself. So one other. And I said four out of five. I'm a big fan of it. So, Ray, that was a good call, knowing that this would probably be a dud. It wasn't um, a dud. It wasn't. I, mean, I wasn't that. I definitely would have. I would have looked at Crocodile Dundee, man. That that movie made like over two hundred million dollars or something crazy in '86. Uh, it did. Although it, it was ultimately, yes, it was the second highest gro- grossing film. But it, since it had come out months before, I thought, oh, okay, all yeah. right. Actually, yeah. now that I think about it, we probably should have just went with a porn movie. I'm that waiting for somebody choice. to do that. Yes, you had a. What did they say? I just I thought of it too late. <laughs> you know, we hadn't seen what Dave looks like and sort of what he drinks and how he lives his life. Now we know to play to the judge, so oh, we should have gone with porn. I've heard yes. the way they. I've seen this show. I know how they talk. I should have figured this out way sooner. Yeah, I wasn't so sure. Uh, in any case, so there you go. Star Trek for the voyage home. All right, man, crush. That's over to us for the movies round. You want to kick this one off? Sure, I'll start this one off. All right, guys, my first movie opened November 7th, 1997, and it is a film that it was the first movie, and it is the favorite movie of this director's entire body of work. It's his favorite movie that he's ever done. It spawned a slew of sequels, an animated series, and I got one question for you guys. Would you like to know more? Because, of course... I am talking about 1997's Starship Troopers, directed by Paul Verhoeven. Ah, uh, nice. Yeah, starring Casper Van Dien, Denise Richards, Jake Busey, and of course, the wonderful Neil Patrick Harris. Just an outstanding movie, and it's, it's something we always talk about on this show is the aftermarket value of a movie. And this movie did not do great in the theaters. It made its money back, but once it hit the home video rental market... And once it hit Showtime, HBO, Cinemax, the movie exploded and became a cultural phenomenon, which led to all those sequels. So that's my first selection, Starship Troopers, released November 7th, 1997. Man Crush, over to you. 
Hey, just to interject on that though, but you said it didn't make its well, it made its money back, but it didn't do well at the box office. It actually did pretty well at the box office, made close to two hundred million dollars in the box office. Problem was they spent close to two hundred million dollars to make the exactly. movie. So that's kind of why, you know, they didn't really make out, but they did all right. It was a matter of fact, uh, the top 10 list I have now from the middle of the month, it was number one. So yeah. it was doing pretty well. Just they spent too much coin. Yeah, they didn't think that the series would be viable because of how much it made and how much it cost. But once it hits that aftermarket, all that extra revenue started coming in and they saw that's where the value is. Or in the words of Dino Peppers, cult classic and head over to our Facebook Facebook.com forward slash dueling decades, because that was actually a post today because that was released, what, 22 years ago today. So it sure was good on them, even though this will come out in the future, future, future. future. <laughs> uh, anyhow, uh, November 1st, 1997, and something Mark and I were talking about before this even started. And I think this happens with a lot of 90s picks that I've noticed, because especially since we do the 80s, like almost all the time, 90s are very much love it or hate it. There's no gray area. And I think when you guys said before, and it got me thinking about it, like the 80s are a great decade and it's a great pop culture decade, but I think it is because there's really, there's no like one side or the other. There's a lot of gray area. You can kind of like something in the 80s. In the 90s, there's a lot of stuff and we we hear a lot of contestants come on every week and you're like, oh, that's fucking garbage. Or that's, you know, oh, that's fantastic. There's never like, oh, that was okay. You know, I'd watch that. Cop and a half is amazing. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> anyhow, uh, November 1st, 1997, we get the very first public showing of this three-hour epic that had some people doubting that moviegoers would even bother to go see a three-hour movie, especially since this was the most expensive movie ever created at the time. We're talking about movies. This one actually spent more than Super Troopers. Over $200 million in budget. Starship Troopers. Oh, what did I, what did I just call it? Super Troopers. Super Troopers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it definitely spent more than that. But that's an excellent movie as well. Uh, but this uh, ended up being about $312 million in budget if you equate it to 2019. So that's fucking insane. Uh, but all that doubt was shattered. An audience of nearly 2,000 screaming fans of the Tokyo International Film Festival lost their damn minds. After a three-hour epic was over, you had teary-eyed women flooding the aisles. The lights came up, and it confirmed all the positive buzz that was emerging from Hollywood that this ship didn't stop rolling until April of 1998. And when it finally got knocked out at number one in the box office slot, and I'm sure I don't have to give you too many more hints for you to realize that this is the James Cameron classic, Titanic. And again, it's... I know it's a it's a love it or hate it because I probably saw it three times on two dates with the same girl. Once I'm <laughs> on my own with my friends, it is what it is. But when you watch it again as an adult, it's a really great movie. I think as a 19 year old, you're a dick and you're like, this is like just whack. What am I watching? Obviously, it's, it becomes one of the biggest movies of all time. Number one money making movie of all time until 2009's Avatar. And then, of course, Endgame would surpass it years later. Uh, Titanic took in 2.1 million or billion dollars, uh, whereas Endgame, I think, finished up at like 2.7 billion, closer to three. But it's important for a couple of reasons. You know, you look at Endgame, Endgame opened to 4,622 theaters and 15,000 screens. And then you look at Titanic and it opened on 2,700 theaters and 5,000 screens. So maybe two per, where Endgame, you had three per. So it's, I don't want to compare the two because they're completely different, but when you're looking at money makers, 
it all kind of began here for this era and they kind of rode the roller coaster because the crazy important thing about this movie when Titanic earned 70% of its gross from overseas markets, it definitely became like that theatrical catalyst that alerted Hollywood of the dominance of the international marketplace. And they haven't looked back since because it's obvious with all the other movies. But that's my pick, Titanic. Do we get a 10-second rebuttal or 30-second rebuttal? <laughs> I was going to say the opposite of, of what Nick said, that when you're a kid, you think, oh, this you know, this is great, or my girlfriend loves it, so I'm into it too. Then when you're an adult, you say, they both could fit on the door. <laughs> she was a bit of a douchebag. I'm with him with the 19-year-old. You're an asshole. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Quick story on this. I went to a double date with my now wife, her friend, and my friend John. And the two of us were like, what the fuck? And it's already the third time I've seen this movie. And I'm like, I really don't (laughs) want to watch this. So I'm already miserable. And I know you guys know this part because everybody in the world has seen this movie. It's when the the boat starts to capsize. There's a guy that falls off the boat and hits the propeller. (laughs) And and the theater is dead silent. And you just hear me and my friend John just start (laughs) laughing at the top of our lungs. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And if you don't know what part we're talking about, go back and watch it. And I highly advise that if you're watching on a home theater system, crank up the audio because you can hear that motherfucker's skull (laughs) bounce off. (laughs) You know, there's some there was some Foley artist like smashing a watermelon against the clock or something. (laughs) Not good enough. Do it again. All right. Off to you, Dave. All right. Let's see here, guys. Um. As far as 86, I got to say, I'm really happy you guys, you know, first off, you're trying to butter up the judge, and I can appreciate that. I'm glad that you see me for who I am, which is basically a big fat schlub who loves to watch porn. So you guys nailed me right off the bat there. Uh, Sid and Nancy, uh, that was a punk rock flop by, you know, numbers wise, but I can relate because I've had a lot of drug dealers tell me to piss off too. Star Trek Four. The Voyage Home, great movie. Saving the Whales, loved it. That The numbers are, are great on that. I'm glad you brought those to me because that, that really, the budget, it exceeded its budget uh, tenfold there. That's, that's impressive. But let's look at 97 real quick here. Starship Troopers, Mark mentioned it's an aftermarket or the aftermarket value on the movie. You see, for me, the only real value it ever had was a hangover special. One of those films that was on TV and you're just a little too hungover to move. <laughs> so you, you'd leave it on and watch it. Um, now, <laughs> Titanic, huge. I mean, you hit us with all the numbers, uh, how impressive that is. But I got to say, you know, for people who don't remember, back in the day, that VHS was Netflix and chill before we had Netflix. You, you'd invite <laughs> a woman over and that was your ticket. You know what I mean? That was, that was your in. So... Yep. Uh, I got to say, 97 will win this round, uh, Titanic alone. I mean, that just, uh, and I, I hate to, to, to use it or say it, but it, it blew it out of the water here. You know what I mean? Yeah, the only problem with the Netflix and chill Titanic thing is mm. you had to stop in the middle to switch the tapes. Yeah, two <laughs> tapes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Hold on one minute, baby. Let me flip yeah. this. <laughs> if you made it to the second tape. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You, Because God knows, everybody saw it in the movie theater. What the fuck you want to watch it again for? But somebody's chick. You saw it three times. What are you talking I, about? In the movie theater. I, you know what? I saw it. Under protest. Yeah. my The last time I saw it was last year because it was on, uh, I think it was on like TNT or some shit like that. And I watched it with my daughter. But, you know, other than that, I own it on VHS and we have it on DVD. I don't even think I've ever broken it out. So there's that. 
But where do you want to go, Mark? You want to go hot products here? Yeah, let's do some hot products, man. Why don't you start off this round? All right. So after 10 years of EA Sports kind of dominating with Madden in the uh, the football market, they finally had an opponent that can they couldn't take overtake immediately because they overtook everybody with football games. And after the 1996 Sony release of NFL Game Day, the Madden crew kind of knew that they had their work cut out for them because up until this point, all football games are basically like 32-bit, Many of the developers, they, they felt it was just too difficult to pull off a 64-bit and use a 3D polygonal graphic because it, there was just too many players on the field, so it would look choppy and shitty. Then, on November 17th, 1998, we got the release of NFL Game Day 98. Uh, it's the first 64-bit 3D polygonal graphic football game. And uh, did you guys play this at all? Are you guys big on football games? Uh, yeah, football games and NBA and God of War are all I play. Yeah, it's so there you go. It, you ha- it, this was the tits. It had it's the first time we actually got to see these guys kind of like articulate in different movements. Whereas Madden was always like two right. D, like up and down the field. Uh, you finally you got spin moves, double moves. You could lower the shoulder. You could tightrope the sideline. Uh, you could juke stiff arm. Dive over the pile. You had all these moves you never got. And you got 30 celebration touchdown dances. <laughs> you know, as far as numbers go, you know, it retailed for about $39.99, around $64 in 2019. I made about $1.3 million in sales. And I found this quote about it. This is great because they really did. Their first three years, game day blew Madden out of the water. And uh, somebody had this quote from 1997. It says, if you want to play next year's Madden early, Play this year's NFL game day. Wow. This is a nice little kick in the nuts. Nice. But, of course, <laughs> you know, Madden ended up taking shit over in 2005. They took over the rights to the NFL and all that stuff. So there hasn't been anybody else in the football market since. But that's my pick is NFL game day 98. When was that released? That was November 17th, 1998. Okay. Oh, wait, 97. My bad. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to continue the trend and also go with a video game. Uh, My video game was released November 24th, 1997. Now, it's a game that actually went through a few different phases. It originally was developed as a game called Wild Cartoon Kingdom and then kind of transitioned into a game called Pro-Am 64. And as you can tell by now, it's probably a racing game, but it ended up becoming the eighth best-selling title for the Nintendo 64. I am talking about Diddy Kong Racing. This game was fantastic. It had a great soundtrack to it and a bunch of different levels you could race on as well. The game received critical acclaim upon its release, and it sold approximately 4.5 million copies worldwide. Yeah, the game was a, an absolute phenomenon for the Nintendo 64. So that's my selection. It's another video game and one that had some great staying power to it. Diddy Kong Racing for the Nintendo 64. All right, over to the idiots for their pick. I think you should go first for this one. Right, I'll go first. <laughs> Although this was released earlier in the year, this thing became the hottest Christmas gift of 86. By November... They couldn't keep it on the shelves. Toys R Us claimed that World of Wonder were deliberately restricting the supply in order to increase sales. And I am talking about laser tag, the dream of every boy in the 80s. You wanted to get out in the yard and shoot your friends with this thing. It was awesome. Unlike Photon that only had a 40-foot range, this thing had a 100-foot range, could be used outdoors, 
where Photon couldn't. It's just, it's amazing. Uh, a spokeswoman for Toy Manufacturers of America who represented 240 toy makers. She quoted this. This toy is extremely hot. I'm getting more questions about it than any other toy for Christmas. And then uh, we go over to uh, an article I found uh, in the Sun Sentinel, November uh, 26. This guy says, uh, Toys R Us couldn't keep it on the shelves. Ten minutes after they'd open, they were gone. And then we're looking at uh, in Manhattan, we got that big old, uh, what is that? FAO Schwartz. FAO Schwartz. Schwartz, yes. 70 boxes came in. They were gone in 10 minutes. That's because Robert Loja bought them all. Yeah. <laughs> well, After he broke that piano. The, the beauty of this thing is, is for 40 to 50 bucks, you only get enough for one person to use. So you, you had to buy at least two of these things to even play the game. Oh, yeah. I didn't thought about that. That was the genius of the product. Right. When you look at it, you have to take those sales fingers and really divide it in half. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah. And even then, they couldn't keep up with people you know, wanting these things. Just an amazing product. And I really don't even have to say anymore because every one of us wanted laser tag that year. And even right now, I bet... If you went to the store and laser tag was on the shelf, you'd buy it right now, and you guys would be out in the yard later tonight, drunk off your asses with your laser tag playing that tonight. Guaranteed, because it's awesome. And I'm just going to shut it down right there, because if you don't know what laser tag is, I I can't tell you. I mean, it's just amazing. It's spelled with a Z, L-A-Z-E-R. Well, that's how you know it's legit, man. Yeah. Got to have that Z. If you're if you're in the '80s and you didn't spell your shit wrong, you didn't do it right. <laughs> yeah, true. You don't want to be a fucking poser, man. <laughs> no. <laughs> you, you know, and I know I know Dave already. I'm not looking to relitigate the last category, guys. I'm not trying to suggest that. But if we're gonna adjust budgets, like Mark suggested, <laughs> Nick went to the movie three times. I think we should at least reduce Titanic's <laughs> box office by that much. <laughs> I don't even think anybody would notice. <laughs> no. No. Okay. So, um. So my product. So, okay, recall in the 1980s, uh, a new ad agency that got its first big client, Nike, signed a relatively unknown basketball star to a $1.25 million contract. Although he was a up-and-comer, he was not a household name yet. I'm talking, of course, course about Michael Jordan. And uh, in 1984, uh, they struck big with the first release of the Air Air Jordan 1s. If you recall, the infamous legend was that they were banned because they didn't have enough white on them. Mm -hmm. Turns out that wasn't entirely true. He was wearing a different uh, set of sneakers at the time that, that were actually banned. But in any case, the story created this legend around these sneakers. So, in November of 1986, looking to capitalize on what was a huge success with the 1984 release of the Air Jordan 1s. In November of 1986, we get the Air Jordan 2s, which come out, which also, um, it seems almost like they're a response to that uh, myth about the uh, Air Jordan 1s, which were essentially black and red, had the big Nike swoosh on it, because the Air Jordan 2s come out and are distinctive from the past generation of Air Jordans. They are almost entirely white and they also have a couple of firsts uh designed by a gentleman named uh, bruce kilgore of the valley kilgores now i, I don't know i don't know where he's from <laughs> like, um, <laughs> i know exactly so um they were the first uh pair of sneakers for nike to be um c- made in italy but also most distinctive about them they were the first pair of nikes not to have a swoosh on them Although they did have this sort of suggestive uh, design on the back of the heel that looked kind of like the swoosh a little bit. Um, And they did have the Air Jordan uh, Wings uh, logo on on the tongue. 
They also created a new design, which had, and I'm just going to read it here because I'm not going to remember what it says, a polyurethane midsole and full-length encapsulated air bubble for maximum comfort, just like the ladies like it. <laughs> um, and it says that they created these modifications to add extra cushioning for, for Jordan's sore feet. Uh, we know he had, you know, infamous, infamously famous, uh, or infamously? Famously. He had famously sore feet. Infamous would suggest that they were evil feet, I think. He had famously <laughs> sore feet. And the when they first designed this uh, new upgrade with the with the extra padding in it, etc., they let him wear a prototype of, of them while he was playing. You wouldn't have known it, though, because they actually had the uppers of the Air Jordan 1s, but the in, insides uh. of the Air Jordan 2. He only got to wear them for 18 games, though, because that's when he broke his foot and then was out for a, a bit. <laughs> Design flaw. Because of the shoe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Nike! Wow. Um, but uh, that season, Jordan scored. So the season the Air Jordan twos came out, Jordan scored a league record of twenty three points, and uh, what ultimately was the was professional basketball's second ever three thousand point season. And not knowing anything about sports, I'm hoping that wasn't just gibberish. Well, I will also point out that the originals <laughs> were sixty five dollars, and the Jordan twos were a sweet one hundred dollars a pair. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, which was actually interesting at a time to come out in the 80s when we had, you know, sort of this upheaval where we had, you know... Okay, um, Ray always gives me this look, and, but I shouldn't and, get political. Yeah. Uh, don't get political. Okay, there you go. Let's just point out, though, that people got killed for these shoes. These things were the bomb. And they were spelled with a Z. <laughs> A-I-R-Z. <laughs> That's how you knew it was legit. Those were the yes. knockoffs. <laughs> okay, so my product is the Air Jordan 2s. I was almost worried that you were going to come out with the Air Jordan 3 there, but 2 I'm not no. as worried about. Mm. The two is like, it's like kissing your sister, the twos. Uh, they were like. <laughs> is is that wrong? Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. More about that. It's like a, I don't know. They were, uh, they were like so-so. The, the threes were the ones with the plastic straps and right. the, mm. the black ones that were like yeah, super popular. But, but the two, the two had the hype. <laughs> Everybody yeah. was waiting on them. Yeah. They had a lot to live up to. And they did. Except for uh, his broken foot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I also forgot to mention they were make, made of faux lizard skin, Dave. I know oh, how much you've, also, you don't want to you want to protect the lizards, Dave. So they didn't <laughs> kill any lizards to make them. Also, number you, one on my agenda: protect the lizards. If you're going to wear a shoe with a tuxedo, it's Jordan. <laughs> He's really. I always thought it. that was Chuck Taylor's, man. <laughs> no, they were Jordan replaced them. All right. Well, let's see what our judge thinks. Let's toss it over to Judge Dave Schultz for the ruling for round two. All right, let's see here. You know, 97, you guys hit me with two video games, the Diddy Kong and the NFL Game Day 98. I'm not a big video gamer myself. I always play on easy. I never play online because I'm really afraid. I'm, I'm really afraid of getting schooled by a millennial high on Tide Pods K-pop. So I just avoid that entirely. Um, so I'm not a big gamer. Uh, 86, oh, you guys really make me sad. And, and the reason why I'm sad to explain is because I, I grew up kind of poor, you know, mm -hmm. so I didn't have the official laser tag. I had the cheap one with the stickers spelled with an S. It, yeah, right. Exactly. I didn't, I wasn't even cool enough to get the Z. So that kind of, uh, that was a bummer. But I mean, laser tag, every, you're right. Every kid wanted laser tag. I mean, it was a thing. Even when you ran out of batteries for the thing, you'd still run around, pretend like, oh, I shot you fall down. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. <laughs> uh, the Air Jordans. Another, I guess, little aside was when I was a kid, I begged my mother for Air Jordans and they were expensive. They were really pricey. And mm -hmm. I, I bothered her so much. She brought me to the shoe store. 
I picked out the gaudiest pair I could find, thinking I'm the coolest cat on the block. I go to school the next day. Every kid laughed at me, Mm. saying you had the ugliest pair of Jordans I've ever seen. They might have been made out of lizard skin. I don't know. But but still, 86, I mean, these products, uh, I think laser tag was the, the key here. Actually, and therefore I, before you guys, you go there, Dave, I just, whoa, I, whoa. I just need a clarification. I need a clarification. Uh, one thing mm. you mentioned when you were, you brought up the laser tag, you said it wasn't released in November, but it was a hot Correct. product for, for the Christmas area. So, uh, I mean, technically, it? yes, but I looked it up in several newspapers where it wasn't until November that it actually started flying off the shelves and they couldn't keep it on the shelves. So that's why I picked it. Oh, man. I wasn't going to originally. I was going to go to, I was originally going to pick this plastic duck thing (laughs) with spinny wings, but um, I figured I'm going to throw caution to the wind and go at laser tag because it was a huge seller in November. We we will, however, abide by the rules and and the judge's ruling. Well, I was going to say man crushes brought everything to a screeching halt. I'm about to say laser tag. You win it. Congratulations. Yeah, well, yeah you were going <laughs> off on laser tag. So, But even then, I think because they what they picked for their categories, with even with the Air Jordans, brings me back to all the years of therapy I needed to have for, you know, again, the, the scarring shoe issue. And then, of course, the sticker <laughs> laser tag thing. Uh, and I'm so, boy. <laughs> and look, and one last thing. I'm not trying to relitigate the last category again, but based on what I'm learning here, the Titanic was more popular in March of 1912 than it was in 1997. I don't know. I, I think not it was in more April, popular not, in 97. Not, not in late April. By late April 1912, it was not as popular. All right, back to you, Dave. All right, guys. I'm really tearing myself apart over this whole thing. Uh, boy, man crush. You just had to do that, didn't you? Yep. Um. <laughs> He came to play. I, you know what? I'm, I'm going to have to reverse my decision because because the Diddy Kong numbers were just so impressive. And not now knowing yeah. that Laser Tag wasn't released that month, I sorry guys, but you had me. You almost had me there. And uh, you guys, <laughs> no, 97 is going to have to win this one by a, by a uh, official ruling. This is the reason I pointed it out, and we could have went with the first ever electric car. But it was in October that they officially started selling them. So it's always there's always like a big item that you just miss. There are way better items I wanted to use, but I couldn't get them in November. Like uh, <laughs> I know the you feeling. Know, the clapper. Oh, dude, the clapper oh. is. I had that as a pick. Clapper, it would have killed. It's amazing. I have an original clapper here in the studio. <laughs> I used to have it hooked up, but the. No, I turned it off for that oh, reason, okay. man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just went through all these stupid things, and I'm like, why Why are they not November? So <laughs> then I just had to shoehorn it in there. I took the crowbar and just shoved it in and said, yeah, we're just going to go for it because, you know. Well, I appreciate we get you, a good one, you going for it. That, I, that that was, we've all done it before. That was yeah, a hard category. That was a hard yeah, category. That was the to, hardest one to find something hard for, to by the way. Yeah. All right, man, crush. By the skin of our teeth, we jump out to a two to nothing lead. What category you want to go with, man? Uh, what do you think? Um, you want to go to television? Yeah, let's do some TV. I'd be down for that. Good. You can kick this one off. All righty. All right, guys. If you were watching TV November 2nd, 1997, you were probably watching The Wonderful World of Disney. That sounds a little weird, and you're probably asking, <laughs> well, why? Or. I'm not going to watch some old uh, Donald Duck reruns. No, because that night they had a remake. Okay, you're like, 
this is getting worse. No, trust me, it's getting better. Because they had the Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella starring Brandy and Whitney Houston. Now, this is considered to be a groundbreaking film due to its diverse cast. It was the first time an African-American young lady had ever been cast to play Cinderella. Uh, it had received critical praise. A BET biographer actually referred to it as a phenomenon, and it broke new ground. It was Brandy Norwood's movie debut and the first time an African-American ever played Cinderella. This version broke viewership records when it debuted with a TV rating of 34.30 million viewers. And it holds the record for the best-selling video for a made-for-TV movie. So that's what I got from my television pick. The remake of Cinderella starring Whitney Houston and Brandy that debuted November 2nd, 1997. And you forgot it's still relevant because they just like a week ago or maybe it was a couple days ago. It's a week ago once this is released, but they just did a live uh, Little Mermaid the same exact yeah. way. Well, that was one of the things about this. It not only was groundbreaking because it had a multicultural cast. It really repopularized this remake musical theme for Disney. They really, after this, the success of this, it kicked off. Like you said, they've done Little Mermaid. You name a Disney franchise, they've adapted it for TV in a musical setting. This was one of the first ones they did, and it was a huge hit. That's why they get the money. All right, Dave. <laughs> November 9th, 1997. I realize, especially with your first comment when you came in, you're like, oh, man, I jumped into the wrong conversation. This is going to be about pro wrestling right here, Dave. So hopefully uh, you're okay with it. All right. So I realize that Dave doesn't like wrestling. We've had this conversation before, but November 9th, 1997. Uh, and it's what occurred during the main event, 1997's WWF Survivor Series pay-per-view. And it's something that has gone down in infamy as one of the most debated things to ever occur in professional wrestling. Ray, I think you like professional wrestling because you brought it up a couple times. So you probably know what, where I'm going, what I'm going to talk about. We all know that wrestling's a work and all the outcomes are predetermined and all that. But in this case, one party wasn't told the correct outcome. Or was he? You know, that's what it kind of boils down to. Yeah. Uh, coming into this main event, <clears throat> you had one of the best wrestlers of all time carrying the strap. It's none other than Bret the Hitman Hart. In the other corner, you had arguably the best worker in the entire industry at the time, Shawn Michaels, Heartbreak Kid. And depending on who you ask, these are probably the two best wrestlers at the time. Uh, and aside from these two not liking one another at all, there's a huge story besides this whole thing. Brett was the champ, and he was a couple weeks away from leaving the company to go to WCW, which is a whole other story as well. And in spite of leaving, Vince McMahon obviously didn't want him to leave with the championship belt. And on the flip side, Brett didn't want to just drop the title to HBK because he felt he was being slighted. If he did that with HBK, there was a lot of things like he didn't like the guys in the click and all, all this stuff behind the scenes. I'm not going to go into it, but they came to an agreement, Brett and Vince, that he wouldn't drop the belt to HBK at Survivor Series and the match would end in a disqualification and they would let him relinquish the title the next night on Raw or at a house show sometime before his contract ended. The other big thing to know about this, we're in the midst of WCW's 83-week dominance of the Monday Night Wars. So Vince is like, he's extra spooked about giving up the belt and having WCW like gloat that they signed the champ and what this can do. It's all TV related, but long story short, HPK ends up winning by slapping on the sharpshooter, which is actually Brett's finishing move. And referee Earl Hebner 
calls for the bell early, even though this is another thing that Brett has said before that he spoke to Hebner before and Hebner like swore in his kids that he wasn't going to get screwed over. So he ends up losing the belt to HBK in his home country with his own move against a guy that he hated. And then this whole melee ensues. Uh, Brett ends up spitting in Vince's face. He does the whole WCW with his finger at the screen. And then, of course, after it, they do you remember what, what was the name of the documentary that they were rolling? Something ghosts. I forget. Oh, man. Wrestling with shadows. Wrestling with shadows. Yeah, that's it. So they're, they're recording this and they kicked them out of the room. But you could see it, Vince comes out later. He, he uppercutted Vince and like knocked Vince out backstage. So all kinds of fucked up shit here happens. It's called the Montreal screw job. Was it all an angle? Did he really get screwed? But at the end of the day, the other big thing that this built is it actually built the evil Mr. McMahon character. They would pretty much be the catalyst with Austin, you know, to propel them into the Attitude Era, end up winning the whole Monday Night War. So it's a huge thing. I'm sorry for going on so long because I know, Dave, you don't know anything about this. I'm trying to, like, give you the backstory. But the Montreal Screwjob. Oh, I know everything about it. Oh, you do. (laughs) I know all about it. He just heard it. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) But that's what I got. Montreal Screwjob. Nice. This is the year we make morning sizzle, not fizzle. Let's do McDonald's. Let's start biscuit buttering and sausage sizzling. Let's do eggs and all our favorites. Let's get brewing and premium roast sipping. Let's make a resolution to wake up breakfast. Right now, get a sausage biscuit with egg for just $2 and any size McCafe premium roast coffee for a buck. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. All right, let's toss it over to the idiots. What do you guys have for your television selections? This was a hard one, too, I thought. Yeah, this was tough, too. Hard to research and um, hard to find some some big standouts. But I'd like to go first, if I may, just as a response to to, uh, Mark's uh, TV uh, presentation there. I have something. Sure, Cinderella. Right. Groundbreaking. Love it. In fact, I actually went to high school with the actor who played the, the prince, who was a friend of mine in high school. Another breakthrough, but let me take you back to November 30th, 1986, the Disney Channel. If you're watching the Disney Channel on November 30th, 1986, do you know what happens? I have no idea what happened. It goes off the air, right? It actually goes off the air briefly because the um, the 18-hour-a-day premium channel signs off one last time. And the next day, December 1st, it becomes a 24-hour network. So, but for that happening, you don't even get what happens in 1997 or whatever year you're protecting at this point. (laughs) Cinderella never happens. That's a pipe dream. Um, But launching, as you know, uh, the Disney Channel, when it first started in the early 80s, it was just a, it wasn't a channel that went 24 hours a day. It had different programming for for families and adults. They tried relaunching some of the shows that were popular on on Disney uh, in the early days, including the Mickey Mouse Club, et cetera, et cetera. Um, What I thought was interesting about this was when they decided to go 24 hours, this article that I found from November of 86, they they quote some statistics for backing this, including that, um, that, well, they say that by expanding their uh, airtime, they're hoping that it will allow them to reach a different audience, which, you know, makes sense. Uh, but they also, and, and part of that they say is because America's labor force works other hours than regular daytime hours, which again, that makes perfect sense. Except I thought this was surprising that they had pointed out that uh, more than one third of their subscribers don't have children. Yeah, they're called pedophiles. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So, <laughs> it was a little, 
<laughs> so it, it goes 24 hours to reach the pedophile audience. Um, <laughs> oh, God, we're all laughing. And, and the, what are they, the short eyes ward of the prison. That's what's playing there. So, and one last thing. So, it, again, but, but for them making this change um, and them developing this, this new network, we wouldn't have had the likes of future stars, including Christina Aguilera, as you know, Ryan Gosling, Carrie Russell, Britney Spears, uh, Justin Timberlake, and so on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm going to go with Family Ties. November, you have episodes six and seven, which are called Mrs. Wrong, part one and part two. So Nick, who is the everyman, which I like to refer to him as because Alex is the Republican who most of us aren't like, and the parents are hippies, and none of us are hippies. Speak for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Look, look, see, now look look behind Mark. He's got all this Grateful Dead memorabilia. <laughs> I thought that was Manson. <laughs> I thought that was Manson behind him. But anyways, in this episode, they're getting ready to elope, and then um, eventually they do elope. And by the way, you also have Elise Keaton, who's the original MILF, by the way. I mean, I, Hell yeah. you know, I don't know what the judge thinks about this, but I'm pretty sure he would have hit that the second he could have. But um, Actually, hold on. I got a question for you. So Mallory married Nick? Well, they eloped. They were going to go get married. They get all the way to, to the church, and Alex comes breaking in, but it's not their, their wedding. He breaks up. But then they decide not to get married. And this is where the episodes get awesome. At the very end of it, they're all there, and it's the huggy-kissy moment. And the other bride from the wedding is knocking on the door because she's got a date with Alex. (laughs) (laughs) That's what makes us the best. But the whole point of it is is, uh, Mallory and Nick are all of us. We're in the middle between the Republicans and the Democrats, and that's what makes this show great because I think she's the key to the whole show. She's super hot. Nick's an idiot, like all of us. And that's what we all want, right? Yeah. This, we're, we're all just Nick, and we want our Mallory. So this, I think this is perfect. And this was a, this is, again, you got to remember, this is what we're talking about, like the, you know, originator of the, that block of Thursday, Thursday programming that was, you know, the beginning of must-see TV uh, in the 1980s. It was during sweeps, mm-hmm. so you had this two-parter with a cliffhanger that, again, was, you know, something and, that was reminiscent yeah. of that year. And then in uh, November 20th, they followed that up with uh, My Brother's Keeper, where poor Skippy, the butt of every goddamn joke on this show, (laughs) tries to join a fraternity. And Alex finds out, because it's the fraternity he hooked him up with, that they're going to make him the butt of jokes yet again. Yeah, and that's Alex's job. Come on. Yeah, right. So he actually fixes it so he can go back to being the butt of his joke. So you got three (laughs) great episodes of Family Ties in November. It's season five. They brought that kid on, but he's hardly in those. He's only there to make stupid jokes about how stupid Nick is, you know? So uh, once again, I will point out that Mallory and Elise are super hot. So <laughs> back then when we were, you know, younger, that got your shit going. So I'm going to I'm gonna go with Family Ties for this one. <laughs> Solid pick. I can't argue with that. I'm a huge Family Ties fan. I wish those parents were my parents sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> no shit. Remember when Nick was in My Demon Lover? Yes. Oh yeah. Right. Oh, oh man. That's a, what, yeah. What's that guy's name? His name is not Nick. Obviously. Uh, no. Yeah. I don't remember. Off oh my god. I'm gonna remember it like in uh, 20 minutes. We're in uh, the last round. So let's just move yeah, on. Yeah. You're gonna be in the middle of a sentence, yep. and you're just gonna spit it out. I will. I totally will. <laughs> All right. Let's hear what Judge Dave Schultz has to say about the television round. 
Yeah, weird rounds, guys. We went from me getting burned on laser tag. <laughs> just really weird. Um, Nick, I love Nick from Family Times. Uh, Family Ties, though. He uh, <laughs> he made art out of garbage. Yep. Scott Valentine. What? Scott Valentine. Scott, That's... You, you just pulled that off your head? Yeah. Scott oh, Valentine, yeah. yes. Right. Wow, you win points for that round for them, just by bringing Thank that up out of the blue. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's look at 97, the Cinderella remake. That is, again, historic with the African-American cast. The Montreal Screwjob sounds like it belongs in the Urban Dictionary. And it was basically a, a really long story about a disgruntled employee. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty Over much. a belt. Yeah. Was Coco Beware at that Survivor Series? <laughs> uh, in 97, I'm sure he was jobbing out to somebody in 97, for oh. sure. Okay. Uh, let's see. 86. The Disney Channel goes 24 hours. Parents across the world rejoice because now they can sit their kids in front of the tube whenever they want and keep them distracted while they eat their bonbons and drink their whiskey. <laughs> the Family Ties story was almost as long as Survivor Series. <laughs> oh, boy, guys. This one's really tight. This is a tight one because nothing, I gotta be honest, nothing really knocked my socks off in this round. God, I wish you so... liked wrestling because <laughs> it's yeah, like one of the biggest know... things in wrestling. Well, that's the thing. You guys are already throwing that around. I hate to admit I like watching oily, sweaty guys kind of wrestle in a squared circle. <laughs> um, yeah, this one's tough. I mean, it really is. Uh, I think, and I gotta be honest, even though you guys nearly burned my ass Last round, I think the Disney Channel going 24 hours, me being a parent now is quite significant because how many of us are parents and we've used TV as a crutch to basically babysit our kids, right? And this kicked that oh, off. Yeah. Any time of day, anytime you needed it, you know, here, go go sit in front of that and watch that and you assume it's safe. Like when we were kids, <laughs> you were put in front of the TV, but you were watching Phil Donahue. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Yep. <laughs> So I think for that alone, I'm going to, and again, you guys, you guys almost screwed me last time, but I will give you uh, this round for, for the idiots. Finally. On the board. All right. The idiots pick up a point. The game is two to one and you guys have control of the board. What category would you like to go with next? Um, go with news? Or... All right. Let, let's do news. You want to go first? Or yeah, sure. First? I don't know that it matters a whole lot. Okay, so let me take you back to a simpler time in the 1980s where our president only appeared guilty of one crime at a time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you remember what began earlier uh, in the year, um, this began earlier in the year of Reagan, Ronald Reagan's second term. It, it sounded like the, the, a plot of an A-team episode, um, like something that the bad guys would do, where the senior administration officials were began selling arms to Iran uh, with the genius idea that they would then take the money from the, the sale to fund the Contras, who was a group of rebels fighting the uh, socialist government of Nicaragua at the time. You know, and it just, again, not only does it sound like a bad plot for one of these TV shows, but was the U.S. government so cash-strapped that we had to, like, take the cash from a sale, like, that happened right... I need that money. I need that money right now. <laughs> to then turn it over to something else, like, immediately. Anyway, the sale of the arms was uh, prohibited under a, a Carter-era embargo of weapons to, to Iran, and the support of the Contras had just been restricted by Congress. Um, so, of course, I'm talking about the Iran-Contra affair. Um, in November of 1986, this all comes to a head when a, a Lebanese mag magazine actually breaks the story. Uh, the operation is discovered when a, an airlift of guns was down to Nicaragua. 
Uh, but the Iranian government confirms the story's true. And 10 days, so 10 days later, we've got Reagan on the air, um, you know, uh, taking some responsibility, but also, uh, you know, s steering the story. At, at, at first, they try to suggest that the arms shipment was part of an operation to free American hostages that were um, held in, in, in Lebanon by Hezbollah at the time. But later, we find out that um, this deal began before the hostages were, were even captured. Um, so that seems to not be true. And then, of course, you know, around this time, as the investigations begin, we famously have uh, Colonel Oliver North diverting a portion of the funds to the Contras, and then later working with his secretary, Fawn Hall, to destroy as much evidence as quickly as possible. Uh, in fact, the uh, legend I found online was that uh, they had stuffed so much top secret documents, so many top secret documents into uh, the paper shredder that this shredder stopped working uh, at one point. In any case, uh, none of the investigations into what happened, including Reagan's appointed Tower Commission, found evidence that Reagan knew the extent of these programs. But 14 administration officials were indicted, including the Secretary of Defense, and 11 convictions resulted. But wouldn't you know it, some of those were vacated on appeal, and the rest were pardoned by George H.W. Bush when he became president. Yep. So I ran contra affair. Wow. Yeah, that whole thing is absolutely crazy. I can't believe the U.S. government was involved in Contra weapons. I mean, I love the laser. <laughs> the spread gun was amazing. Wow. All right, well, if you like that and you like violence, then I'm taking you back to November 22nd, 1986. We're going to go take a little trip back to the Las Vegas Hilton in Paradise, Nevada. A 20-year-old kid from Brooklyn making his way to the ring to fight Trevor Burbick for the title. Now, Burbick is no sh you know, schlub. He's 31-4-1 with 23 knockouts. He's the current champ. But the entire crowd is in a froth. The place is electric as Mike Tyson comes into the ring. And you can just tell from the way the announcer is talking that this is not going to end well for Trevor. Trevor's face even tells the story. So, you know, the fight starts, and they're basically just handing him the belt. The announcers, Mills Lane, he's down there, the ref. He's like, I want a good, clean fight, and I want you to hand the belt to Tyson when this is done, okay? So, <laughs> fight starts, and everyone knows Tyson's got three great punches, right? He's got the uppercut that devastates you. It's like a nuclear bomb. You're done. The left hook knocks you down three times, and then you get up all wobbly so the ref can tell you you're done. And he's got the elbow that follows the right hook and catches you in the side of the face. And you're like, what the hell is that? Dick move, dude. Well, no, because they never called him for it. So it's a good move. So fight's going. The crowd is electric in this thing. And it, it's never in doubt. I mean, this is the first time he doesn't come out. He's, he don't, they don't call him Iron Mike. There's no nickname. It's just Mike Tyson. 27-0. and 0. 25 knockouts. The guy is a maniac. He destroys him in the first round. You would have thought the building was on fire the way people were screaming during this fight. 235 of the second round, he takes him down. One punch, the guy goes down three times. He knocked Jeez. him down three times with one punch. And then the guy gets up and tries to fight him some more, but the ref's like, no. His hands aren't even up. Another cool fact about this is um, they find him like $5,000 for wearing black trunks. And he's like, I don't give a shit. I'm going to win this thing. I'm going to make a shit ton of money. And this is the moment when I believe Nintendo said, punch out, this is the guy. 
And as we all know, back then you paid like 45 bucks for these pay-per-views. The chairs are set up. The pizza's bought. You go to the bathroom, the fight's over. Yeah, that was always my problem with Tyson fights. Oh, my fights. God. And we've talked about it on, on other episodes is, you know, for somebody who was built up to be such a badass, I mean, yeah, of course, he was he was a badass because he could knock people out in 10 seconds. But for a spectator, that sucks. Well, it did take him two rounds. <laughs> yeah. Went a little longer than normal. <laughs> he's, uh, yeah, he's 20 years old. He's the youngest heavyweight to ever hold the belt. And he kisses that dude, if you've ever seen the video, he kisses the guy in the glasses. Like, he's so happy. He kisses another man at the end of that fight. <laughs> Have you ever been so happy about anything, like at your wedding or anything no. else, that you kissed your best man? No. At this moment in time, that's how happy he is. If we win this, I'm going to kiss Ray. Uh, I, I don't want you to. I almost want to see that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want that. We got to do what we got to do, Ray. Like I said, man, Trevor Burbick was no sh no schlub in this fight, man. He came in, He's... I think he's the last guy to ever fight Muhammad Ali and win. I mean, he's 30-something. He's like 32 years old when this fight takes place. So I think this is, for you know news, I think this was huge because this started a whole just frothy mess in boxing because this is where Don King comes into the picture. And just 80s boxing scene is the last great boxing scene. That I can agree with for sure. Yeah. The best was Tyson would come out in those umbros. It was like black umbros oh, yeah. and a, a freaking no socks. cut out towel. Yeah, no yeah, long got, socks. Yeah, he's got no socks at all, man. He's just wearing black shoes, black shorts, and he's got the towel with the big hole cut in it. He's coming down, and you can just tell by the look on his face. He's like, I'm going to destroy someone tonight. I'm going to eat the children. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> or his ear, either way. Yeah, I'm going to bite ears. Um, and you can just tell that the, the he was just so angry. So I'm going with Tyson for that one, yeah. All right, so Tyson and Iran Contra. All right, Mark, you want to go first, or you want me to go first? I'll go first on this one. All right. All right, so for my news story, I got another company that has a Z in its name, so you know it's legit. <laughs> it was a loser for us last time, Mark. Just warning. <laughs> <laughs> well, the company I'm speaking about is Amazon, Ooh. because uh, November 30th, 1997, Amazon.com, had really started to take off. The stock price had doubled since it had gone public back in May, and the stock price was now $50. Now, if you take a look at Amazon's current stock price, <laughs> we're at $1,788 as of today. Things were really starting to jump off the page for Amazon. And then they did something that changed the company. They opened up one of their warehouses, their fulfillment centers in Delaware, this doesn't sound like a big story, but it completely changed the company and was a major part of Jeff Bezos' strategies. Amazon.com's new fulfillment center in Delaware gives the company an extension they had been looking for. They had another distribution center over on the West Coast in Seattle, uh, but with this new one, the Newcastle location in Delaware, it now will make deliveries possible in one to two days. So what we're really starting to see here with this new Delaware Fulfillment Center is the infrastructure that would provide us with Amazon Prime a few years later. Not as many products as they offer today, but this is where the infrastructure started. It was a huge thing for Amazon, and they opened up this Delaware facility on the East Coast. So uh, that's my pick. November 30th, 1997, 
Amazon. It's got a Z in its name, so you know it's legit. <laughs> <Very good. laughs> All right, so November 10th, 1997. And this has come up on a couple previous episodes. We brought up Steve Jobs, especially when it concerns 1997. Just to give it a little abridged version of this in the timeline, he was fired by Apple in 85. He started his own company called Next, and he did that right up until Apple bought them at the end of 1996. Then Apple brings Jobs back in the summer of 97 to help them find a new CEO. And then I think this just came up a couple episodes ago. Uh, by September, Jobs is back in charge where it all began at Apple with the new iCEO moniker, which wasn't trying to sound cool. The I was actually for interim, but then they ended up dropping that in January. But now he's a CEO. Uh, and in those other episodes, they had the Jobs stories and people are talking about like what he kind of did long term. But what I'm going to do in this one is tell you what he did short term. And one of the first things he did when he came back, because the company was a complete shit show in the 90s, especially in the mid 90s, up to the point where he came back. So this is his first big announcement since returning to the company on November 10th, 1997. He had one of these keynotes and he came out with four big things they're going to do. One, they're releasing a whole new line of power PCs utilizing technology from Motorola, better machines that they've been putting out because they've been putting out garbage. Two. We get the first glimpse of the Apple store because CompUSA, we're going to have these distinctive store within a store sections that would only feature Apple hardware and software. And nowadays we got full on Apple stores because CompUSA is not even around anymore. Or if they are around, I don't know. I haven't seen a retail location in God knows how long. Uh, three, the, this is a big deal. They reconfigured their factories to build Macs to order. This is something they had never done in the past. And by doing this, they were eliminating all the backlog of all their on-sole computers, which was their biggest problem in the 90s. And now this is something that was duplicated by numerous PC companies in the late 90s. You had Dell, Gateway, all these companies popping up that started doing the same thing. Then four, this is the other big one. Now that they're offering these computers like basically made to order, how are they going to accomplish this? Jobs, he realized that he couldn't do this via catalog and it wasn't the future. So Apple launched Apple.com, where you can customize up to 300 different configurations of Macs. And again, this is something that would revolutionize the way the computers are sold. Because from that point out, all these companies started popping up online and you can configure PCs. But the only place you can configure a Mac was on Apple.com. So that's it. It's uh, November 10th, 1997. It's Jobs' keynote speech and the four big things that they're bringing to Apple. And of course, we all know where that landed today. I don't have their stock price in front of me, but I'm sure it's fucking astronomical. <laughs> yeah, very good. All right. Off to you, David. All right. Um, first up, 86. Uh, the Mike Tyson winning the heavyweight championship for the first time. Very impressive. Even though I'm a little curious, where is Trevor Burbick now? I can only assume that he's possibly working at a Krispy Kreme, telling a bunch of teenagers how he got his ass knocked out way back in 86. But, you know, this worst claims to fame. I'm pretty sure that everyone that Tyson ever knocked out is has brain damage and works at Krispy Kreme now. <laughs> <laughs> true. Very true. Iran Contra, huge, historically significant, cannot be ignored. Now over to 97. Uh, the Amazon thing, Mark, this was just basically about the Delaware Center, the, the distribution center? Yeah, it was. they had opened a distribution center in Delaware, and it was the first one that they had on the East Coast. 
And it, what it really did is allowed them to have the shipping across the entire United States, and it provided a hub for them to expand into Europe, which they did within the next year or two. Okay, I think this might be significant for all the wrong reasons, because you start with Delaware. <laughs> okay, right? You go to drones, Skynet. and then it's end of days. Yes! Skynet, yeah. Sky, you, exactly. You know, this is going to be the end of end of all of us, and it all started in Delaware. <laughs> go mm-hmm. figure. Um, Jobs keynote speech, the made-to-order computers, also impressive. Apple.com, hey, that's, that's big stuff. Anytime you talk about Steve Jobs, you know, again, uh, kind of weighing it to... Even the Iran-Contra, which is a political thing, everything that Steve Jobs did later on is really important to how we live our lives today. That being said, though, I think I'm going to have to go with 86 on this round because Iran-Contra, I remember just being on TV all the time and seeing Ollie North's sad-ass face <laughs> on the television and and the legacy of Mike Tyson and what he became and you know the rise and fall, but it basically started that night. And if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have Little Mac. So, yep, 86, you, go. you got it. All right. So, I think that ties us up, doesn't it? No, that puts you guys in the lead. Three to two comes down to the final round. Oh, wow. So hopefully, we don't shot. have anything else in our ring because I don't know what the hell Dave will pick because he picked boxing over wrestling. <laughs> so, we'll see. <laughs> All right, idiots. You guys have control of the board heading into the final round. Now, would you like to go first or would you like to Ooh. defer? Hmm. Let's just go first. Oh, okay. I, I think we're strong on this one, so let's go first. I'm gonna I'm gonna do mine though. Okay. First. Yep. Sure. I'm going to go with on November 29th. This song became this band's first number one hit, and these guys are beautiful, beautiful men from New Jersey. It is Bon Jovi. You give love a bad name. Now you're drunk at the bar. 2.30 in the morning, and they fire this thing up, you know you're singing along. You can't stop yourself. There's just no way to do it. VH1 considers this to be the 20th greatest hard rock song of all time. I mean, that's pretty impressive, right? 20th out of all time for hard rock? And it's written by John Bon Jovi, Richie Sambora, and Desmond Child. And I don't remember exactly what else he did, but I know his name, so he must have done some other good stuff. <laughs> He didn't have a Z in his name, though. <laughs> well, you could change that S to a Z if you really wanted to. <laughs> Whatever Dave wants. Ah, uh-huh, nice. Yeah, from the album Slippery When Wet, I will argue with anyone to not sing along to this one when it comes on. I don't care what genre you love. When this song comes on, you're singing along, and that's what I'm going to go with. Solid. So that's the, uh, the day that it went to number one? Is that what it is? Correct. November okay. 29th is the day it went to number one. Gotcha. That's that's what I'm going with. See, our, our whole goal here, though, is I'm setting up Whoa. Will for the kill shot. Oh, uh, okay. Well, we you know, again, we, we don't know our judge well enough yet. We've learned a lot about him today. I feel like we should charge him for therapy, though, because of some of the <laughs> things he was working through earlier with the laser tag. and the. Or we need to start a GoFundMe and get him those sneakers. Uh, <laughs> In any case, okay, let me take you back to November of 1986, where someone uttered, Finally, after the success of Run DMC and LL Cool J, we have real hip-hop, said some racist on November 15th, 1986, (laughs) when the Beastie Boys dropped License to Ill. Uh, Released by Def Jam, it was the first rap LP to hit uh, the top the Billboard 200 album chart, where it spent 73 weeks. At the time, it was the best-selling rap album, and it wasn't... uh, uh, replaced at that role until MC Hammer's breakthrough in 1990, although, you know, we might argue that's not really a real 
that was not, I don't know, considered a real rap artist. But um, so moving forward, um, three singles were released prior to the album's debut, but mostly they were played exclusively on urban stations at late night hours. Of course, it's hard to ignore some of the now cringeworthy uh, lines of the album. I disagree. Even the name that the Beastie Boys <laughs> originally wanted shall not be named. Um, but they've the Beastie Boys have since atoned. They apologized in the 90s for their past behavior and even included line lyrics and songs uh, that uh, were intended to clarify their uh, evolution. The album, if you remember, was a beautiful gatefold that had a collage, uh, was done by a collage artist named World the Ohms that depicted an airplane uh, crashing into the side of a mountain, mountain that also looked suspiciously like a joint being put out. In fact, if you also remember, they had those the, the numbers of the airplane were yep. actually he held it in the mirror. It said "Eat me," which apparently Rick was Rick Rubin's idea, and the band hated that. But um, some additional breakthrough stuff from the album because uh, it was really a crossover record. It um, not only was it rap, it featured a lot of, of of rock, hard rock guitar sounds, and they weren't the first to do that because uh, Run DMC had just done it right before them. But they took it to a whole new level by in, not only including uh, you know rock sounds like uh, guitarist uh, Kerry King on No Sleep Till Brooklyn, but also including uh, samples. Which again, that's not breakthrough in itself because samples were used as early as hip hop, you know, started uh, taking hold in the early '80s. But what they included was samples from groups that hadn't been sampled before. So sure, you, you can pull from James Brown and a bunch of R&B groups, but they they included um, uh, samples from Led Zeppelin, from uh, CCNR, from Black Sabbath, from The Clash. Um, the theme from Mr. Ed is in a song. Um, so there was a lot in this record to be liked by a very wide audience, and it was clear from the numbers um, that it, it did resonate with a lot of, of folks. So, And I will point out as a side note, this is not related to the success of the record, but this was, I think, the first concert I saw. And I was I t I, my aunt brought me to this concert, and um, I was about 15 years old when this came out. And at some point, not only do they have you know half-naked women in cages, and I'm with my aunt watching this, but at some point, they have to stop the show to shove a 20-foot hydraulic penis back into its box because they're about to shoot an MTV video, and they say they can't have this giant phallus on the stage. And literally, there's like four or five crew members jumping on the head of this phallus, stuffing it slowly back into this <laughs> box. I was horrified sitting next to my aunt watching this. And I'm the one who needs therapy? Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> we could probably get a group rate, Dave. You oh, and I will go. Yeah, believe me, I need therapy too, but I'm not I'm admitting in. it. So there you go. <laughs> License to ill. All right. All right, man crush. I guess it's over to us. It is. You want to go first or should I start off this round? You could start off because I don't even remember what you had. All right, guys. Since you don't remember what I have, you guys don't know what I have. We're going to play a little game. I'm just going to ah. give you the accolades of my music selection. <laughs> see if you guys can figure it out. This album debuted at number one on the Billboard Top Country Albums charts, and it stayed there for 50 non-consecutive weeks. It is the all-time best-selling country music album, the best-selling studio album by a female act, the best-selling album by a Canadian it is the eighth oh, no. best-selling album of all time in the United States, the 16th best-selling album in the UK, and it sold more than 40 million copies worldwide. The album, of course, I'm talking about is Come On Over, the third studio album by Shania Twain, released November 4th, 1997, written and produced by Shania Twain herself and legendary producer Robert 
John Mutt Lang. It gave us the unforgettable singles, Man, I Feel Like a Woman, which is something I say every day. Come on over. <laughs> You're still the one, and that don't impress me much. But what does impress me much are the accolades for this album. Uh, it's one of my wife's personal favorite albums. She was really excited when I told her I was going to be able to pick this one. And for a country album, this is an album that has really stood the test of time. It, you still hear it. All of these singles played today on country radio. 40 million albums sold. You can't argue with that. So that's my selection. Come on over. The third album by Shania Twain, released November 4th, 1997. And I did remember after you just started talking, I was like, oh, yeah, he's got Shania Twain. I don't know. I like my mind went blank there for a minute. Um, all right. So good one. And it's nice to get some country on here because we hardly ever talk country. Uh, not that I listen to it, but a lot of people do, apparently. 40 million people bought that. Uh, November 21st, 1997. And uh, after releasing five albums with his buddy Jeff, we get the solo debut from a budding superstar, musician, sip sitcom star. And by 1997, he had become like a gargantuan movie star, having a huge back-to-back-to-back -back -back summer hits, 95, 96, and 97. So while at the top of his game, why not? Let's release a solo album. When it was all said and done, the album had five singles, went nine times platinum, selling close to 13 million copies worldwide, two Grammys, and featured two number one hits, including Men in Black and Getting Jiggy With It. The album is Will Smith, Big Willie style. And here's what makes this monumental, and, and hear me out for a second. This legitimately solidifies Will Smith as the pop culture poster boy of the 90s. He came in as a rapper. He moved on to becoming one of the premier leading men for six seasons in Fresh Prince, and he could have went on for more, but he stopped because he became a movie star. Three straight years, blockbusters, Bad Boys, Independence Day, Men in Black. And then he puts this album out in 97 just to be like, oh, yeah, remember, I can also rap. And then won two Grammys in the process, which just cemented him not as the prince, but as the king of 90s pop culture so that's what i have it is will smith big willie style november 21st 1997 off to david schultz all right um let's look at 86 first uh november 29th you give love a bad name hit number one on the charts now you mentioned that you know it's one of those songs where you just have to sing along the moment that you hear it but I can, in fact, stop myself from singing along. No, I said when you're drunk. Oh, okay. Well, I, I'm commonly drunk as well. So even then, that's, you know, there we go. We can throw that out the window. And plus, I have I have no luscious locks, so hairspray need not apply. So mm -hmm. Bon Jovi doesn't have that effect on me. But I, I did have a uh, an aunt whose hair was higher than the Empire State Building, and she loved Bon Jovi. <laughs> The Beastie Boys License to Ill, this this album, I mean, this was huge not only then, but for years after, because, you know, I was a teenager in the early 90s, and we were still listening to that record and getting our kicks off it and laughing at some of the songs and, you know, No Sleep Till Brooklyn. We just, we would repeat it and sing it, you know, to each other, and we just thought we were the coolest kids on the block. I mean, this album had a lot of, a lot of history behind it, uh, especially for me and my friends. But let's pop over to 97 real quick. Because Cheyenne, Cheyenne, I can't even say her name, <laughs> whatever, Cheyenne Twain, <laughs> Shania, Shania, whatever, because you know what that her whole thing was that 
song, The Man I Feel Like a Woman, everybody, the moment you say it, you can hear that dun 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 dun, dun and it makes me want to jump off a cliff. <laughs> because it was played in the bar, I mean, over and over and over again. I mean, people will go to the jukebox and just put it on repeat, which, you know, if if you experience that era, you realize that song was perfectly paired with Mad Dog 2020, <laughs> meaning that there was a, a lot of sketchy young ladies really just dug that song. But I mean, you can't deny the numbers on that. That was a cultural phenomenon, and she took over the world and bars... You know, everywhere. Uh, Will Smith, big Willie style. Yeah, again, that that you brought up a lot about his acting career. And I think that might even help the record. You know what I mean? Because I don't really think it was very good. But yet again, those were songs that were played over and over and over again. You know, it, listen, 86, it, the Beastie Boys, well, it pulls at my heartstrings. Just even thinking about that record. I think we're boiling down to the numbers don't lie. And between uh, those two records in 97, because I can't say her damn name, so I'm not even going to attempt to say her name, <laughs> Miss Twain. <laughs> if you're nasty. Yes, thank you. Um, 97, I'm sorry, but you guys have this one. You guys, uh, again, you guys win this round. It's because he's the king wow. in the 90s. That That's why I brought up all that <laughs> stuff, because seriously, if you think about it, and I didn't to that point, and I started putting all this shit together, he is like, if you thought of the 90s, I had saw a meme once and it said all this is the 90s in one picture. And it was a picture of Will Smith sitting on the floor playing Nintendo with like a VCR. It was in black and white. And he had like the whole 90s outfit on. But and it never dawned on me that he was part of that picture because he was the 90s. Not only did he have that show, which was everybody watched that show at some point. You had those movies that were yeah. just gigantic after 95. And the dude's still making movies. His family's big. Got we don't want his son in too much, but um, <laughs> his wife is gigantic. And he basically made Jada Pinkett Smith was big as Jada Pinkett, but once she became Jada Pinkett Smith, it was like a whole another animal, you know. So I just think that he was like this monster of the '90s, and that I didn't even realize that until I started looking up this album. And then, of course, you had Welcome to Miami, which was always fucking played in bars and shit like that in clubs. Yeah. And then that, that song with his son, Just the Two of Us, was on that, too. But, wow. You know, look, I'm not looking to relitigate re anything, okay? We'll lose. <laughs> but, but Dave, you said you didn't like Bon Jovi because he's got long mm. hair and you don't. You also don't have breasts, I'm guessing, but you went with Shania Twain. Well, it's because she has breasts. <laughs> <laughs> I actually I have a, a little soft, supple pair, actually, that I'm checking out right now. But I think, you know what? You guys could redeem yourselves if you did do it the GoFundMe to buy me the Nikes. So maybe, <laughs> maybe we can come back and revisit this right. loss later and, and kind of switch it around, you know? I will tell you this, Dave. I grew up in the same boat that you were in. I didn't get no laser tag or no Jordan, so I feel for you, man. It's because your boat didn't have a Z in its name. My boat didn't have no <laughs> <Yeah>. oars. <laughs> we had a Z. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, Crush. Looks like we pulled out a victory here by the skin of our teeth. I can't believe the Mamelukes win another one. I want to thank the idiots for giving us an awesome fight. You guys did a great job tonight. Tell all of our listeners where they can go to listen to your show. Yeah, you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search for The Idiots. That's The and 80ITS. 
Thank you guys for having yeah. us, man. This was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, and, and watching you guys in action, I, I think we learned a lot about how, if you have us on again, uh, how we might be able to strategize a little bit better and bring a better game next time. How do you bring a better game? I want to know. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm bringing, Don't tell them. I'm bringing nothing but porn movies, porn soundtracks, news. I'm bringing porn news. <laughs> so it's all going to be just porn. It's funny. We've talked about this, and we talked about having a show on Pornhub, like just you know taking it and put it. <laughs> Like instead of posting it on our feed, just taking it and posting it on Pornhub and the entire show will be about porn from two separate years. Oh, nice. That might happen one day. If it does. Oh, I got to judge that. (laughs) (laughs) I will call you guys. And speaking of judges, we got Judge Dave Schultz back once again. Uh, Dave, tell people where they can listen to Selling Out. Uh, you can find us on infirmary.org, all your favorite. I think they call them pod catchers, right? Which sounds terrible. It sounds like an STD. But uh, yeah, all the pod apps everywhere out, out there on the socials, at Selling Out Show, your Twitter, your Instagram, because we're hip like uh, tight rolling your jeans. We're down with the kids. And our most recent episode, we did a saucy expose on Howard the Duck that is not to be missed. <laughs> wow. So make sure everybody, you go check that out as soon as humanly possible. And while you're at it, head on over to DuelingDecades.com where you guys can check out all of our past episodes just in case you've missed one, which I know you haven't because you guys are all caught up. And while you're there, you're also going to see our audio trivia right there in our RSS feed. You can play along with that if you head over to Facebook.com forward slash DuelingDecades where we have trivia going every day. We got our audio trivia a few times a week. And then over the whole course of the week, of course, we have our culmination trivia. That means you can earn points to climb the Dueling Decades leaderboards and have bragging rights as the greatest retro warrior in the land. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media. This is the year we make morning sizzle, not fizzle. Let's do McDonald's. Let's start biscuit buttering and sausage sizzling. Let's do eggs and all our favorites. Let's get brewing and premium roast sipping. Let's make a resolution to wake up breakfast. Right now, get a sausage biscuit with egg for just $2 and any size McCafe premium roast coffee for a buck. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal.